2 Corinthians 5 is where we're going to be. We're in a series called He Came, We Go. He Came, We Go. That Jesus came to usher in restoration, a life of restoration, and then now sends us as agents of restoration to go in his name. Last week, we started this series by looking at the Christmas story, and we learned two truths. Truth number one is we saw that Jesus came to step into our brokenness. And this is good news for us because what this simply means is, is to have a relationship with Jesus doesn't mean we've got to clean ourselves up. We don't have to be perfect. We can be broken because he came to step into our brokenness. One of the things that I said last week was that Jesus did not come for the Christmas card version of you, that he came for the, the part of you that's broken, that's sinful, that you're ashamed of, that you're guilty of. We, he came for that. And then the second truth is really where we find hope. Not only come to step into our brokenness, but he came to restore what was broken. And so what we find in Jesus is a relationship with God where we can experience the ever-restoring life, that, that through this relationship, God is doing a work of, not only has he restored us to himself, but he is restoring us as we walk in relationship with him. And this morning, what we're gonna see is that this ever-restoring life, this message we receive and we experience, then moves us on an ever-restoring mission where now God wants to use us in the mission of redeeming people back to himself. And this is what we're gonna talk about this morning, that the, the fundamental purpose that we have in life is to be in relationship with God and introduce others into that relationship, that knowing Jesus changes everything about us, including what we live for. This is what we're gonna see this morning. So 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, if you're there, say, I'm there. All 18, awesome. Verse 17, all right? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Listen, Paul is doing something here, and I'm gonna be actually reading lines and then talking about them all morning long, so just kind of get used to it. So what Paul is doing here when he says, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. He uses this phrase, if anyone is in Christ. Say, what does that mean? To be in Christ simply means that you've responded by faith to what he's done for you on the cross and resurrection, and you have become a follower of Jesus. That's what it means. It means that you're a, a true Christian. And what, what Paul does is he uses this in Christ as a way of helping us understand that positionally, when we respond by faith to Jesus, literally, we are placed in Christ. That means that his death has become your death. That is, it's as if you died on the cross with Jesus. His resurrection has given you new life and his righteousness has been given to you. So you are in Christ. His death is your death. His life is your life. His righteousness is your righteousness. And he says this results in something. If anyone is in Christ, here's what he says. He says they are a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, all things have become new. Here's what... Paul is teaching us here. He's using a phrase, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, as a way of uh, reminding us of what Jesus said it meant to know him and be in relationship with him. If you remember back in John chapter three, Jesus was approached by a religious man by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus came to Jesus because fundamentally he wanted to know, how can I have a relationship with God? How can I be a part of the kingdom of God? Which is what it, what it means to be in a relationship with God. And if you remember John chapter three, Jesus says to Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He cannot enter into a relationship with Jesus. 
So what Paul is doing is he is echoing the same thing Jesus says. What does it mean to be born again? It means to become a new creation. It means to become a new person. There's something so radical that happens in our lives when we submit to Jesus as Lord. There's a supernatural work that occurs where we become a new person. We are literally, Jesus says, it's like you're born all over again. You're not the same person you were before. Now, this new life works itself out over time. It's not like all of a sudden I'm a new person and, and I'm not doing anything that I used to do. But what it does mean is that the, there is a new person that's now learning how to live a new life. And here's what Paul is saying. This is the ever-restoring life that is ours in Jesus. It's a life of being restored to Jesus and finding new life. Then it's a life of learning what it looks like to live being restored in Jesus. And he's doing this, life, uh, doing this work of helping us learn how to walk the new life that we've received. That's, that's in essence what Paul is saying. If anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. They're a brand new per person. They've been restored to God and are being restored in a brand new life where it's becoming more and more like Jesus every day. I told you a couple of weeks ago about my salvation story of me coming to faith in Christ when I was uh, 16. And um, I, I was living a life that was going far away from the Lord. I mean, I was, I was in things that I shouldn't have been into, heading a wrong direction. God intersected my life, and, and that day when I got on my knees and I confessed, God, I need a Savior. I need someone to transform my life. Here's, here's what I know definitively. The, the young man that got on his knees is not the same man that got up. Is that there was something supernatural that happened. I became a new person. Now, here's what I want to make sure you understand clearly. I, I, I still had some of the same habits. I still had some of the same desires, and here's the way I frame it with people all the time when I'm talking about this. It's not as if when I got up, I stopped sinning, but my relationship with sin changed immediately. I was a new person. I couldn't go the places I used to go and do the things I used to go and, and get the joy that I had out of it before. My relationship with sin changed because I became a different person. And even now, 30-something years later, that is still working itself out. If you ever play basketball with me, you understand, there's still a lot of the old guys still hanging around sometimes. But God is doing this work in my life. It's an ever-restoring work. And so we understand is that when we're in Christ, we're a new creation. This is the, the life that Jesus died to give us. Now, this leaves us with asking two fundamental questions. If this is the life that he came to give me, one, how is this possible? And number two, what does this produce? If this new creation, this being born again, this new ever-restoring life is what Christ came to usher in, then how, one, is it possible? And, and two, what does it produce in my life? And this is what we're gonna unpack over the next few minutes. So question one is this, how is this ever-restoring life possible? Let me give you the answer. Write this down if you're taking notes, and then I'll show you in the text what I'm talking about. The ever-restoring life is made possible only by grace through the reconciling work of Jesus. It is only by grace through the reconciling work of Jesus. Say, so what do you mean? Look what he says in verse 18. Paul says this. He says, all of this is from God. Now, press pause here for a minute. We gotta ask this question. What is all of this that he's, in, he's referring to? So verse 18 starts out, all of this is from God. What is the all of this? Well, it's everything that he said in verse 17. It's the ever-restoring life. It's the new creation. It's being born again. Though this brand new life that we received in Christ Paul wants to make emphatically clear, all of this is from God. 
And here's what that means for you and I in this room this morning. Your salvation from initiation to completion and everything in between is not from you, by you, but it's from God and by God. That salvation from top to bottom, from start to finish, from the moment we recognize we need a savior to the moment we stand in his presence in heaven for all eternity, it is a work that he and he alone, it is by his grace and his grace alone. So we don't earn it, we don't merit it, we don't work ourselves up and say, okay, God goes, well, you, you've done pretty good this year, so maybe now you're in a position for me to save you. We play no part other than responding and receiving. All of this is from God. So what did God do? Look what he says here in verse 18. He says, all of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And I told you, I, I warned you, all right? So I'm gonna, I'm gonna be kind of breaking down each of these verses line by line so that we get the weight of what Paul is saying. Let's backtrack. If anyone's in Christ, we're a new creation. The old is gone, new has come. All of this work of new creation is, is from God, and listen to this, who reconciled us to himself, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Now listen, why is this phrase so important, reconciled us to himself? Because it shows us the nature of our relationship with God both before Jesus and after Jesus. When he says, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, that helps us understand that without Jesus, we are in need of reconciliation. And that word is a powerful word. So what does it mean? To, for there to be reconciliation, it means that there has to be some sort of of relational tension or brokenness that needs to be repaired, right? To reconcile something is to acknowledge that it's not as it should be. It's broken, it's severed, and it needs to be reconnected and rejoined. So what Paul is saying here is, is that before Christ, our spiritual condition is that because of sin, we have been severed from our relationship with God. That our relationship with God has been severed and, and, and this idea of reconciliation implies that not only were we severed from God, but we were actually at odds with God. You see, fundamentally, the spiritual condition of humanity without Jesus because of our sin is not that we are just bad people and need to get better. It's not that we're just people that, yeah, we're out of fellowship with God and I need to do some things to try to get back in fellowship with God. No, our spiritual condition is we are the enemies of God. The relationship has been severed. The, the word enmity, that, that means that there's, there's friction and hostility between us and God. Paul would say this in Ephesians chapter two, that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. That we were by nature the objects of God's wrath. That our spiritual condition made us the enemy of God. That's the condition that we are in. Listen, if you don't know Christ, that's your relationship with God. But this is why Jesus came. Jesus came to reconcile the relationship. To bring friendship back again. You see, the fundamental problem of, of humanity is this. The brokenness that's around us, the fundamental problem of humanity is that we were made for a relationship with God, sin severed that relationship with God, and now humanity has been wandering in our sin trying to find meaning and purpose, and all it has done is produce deeper and deeper and deeper brokenness. 
At the end of the day, what is most broken about us if we're not in Christ isn't the conditions of our living. It isn't the world that we're living in. It's not the things that have been done to us. It's not even the things that we do that's destroying our life. The problem at its root is that we need a relationship with God and we've been severed from it. That's where we were supposed to find life, meaning, and purpose. And apart from that, there is no life, meaning, or purpose, no matter what we do in the world. This is what we need. At the root of our life, this is what we need. This is what we were made for. And Jesus came, check this out, to reconcile that relationship. Now, eyes right here just for a second. This is why this word reconcile is so powerful. Because reconciliation implies two things, right? One, hostility, brokenness. But when you've been reconciled, it implies what? Relationship. Now listen to what the Apostle Paul is saying. This is the heart of the ever-restoring life. That Jesus' great agenda in coming to planet Earth to die on the cross for our sin, to resurrect so we could have salvation, is so that we might experience once again the very relationship we were made for, which is with our Creator. That's why Jesus came. You see, the reason so many of us in the American church, we miss out on the abundant life that's ours in Christ. We read like the, about this, this life that Jesus wants us to have, and we're going like, I don't experience any of that. It's because many of us, we only view our salvation as a get out of hell free card. So you're like, why did Jesus come? Jesus came to die for our sins. Why did he die for your sins? So we won't go to hell. But understand, that's not what Paul is saying. It's not what Paul says here. The reason Jesus came was for reconciliation, for relationship. You see, here's what we gotta understand. Jesus' primary purpose in coming and putting on flesh and living among us and accomplishing salvation was not so that we could escape hell and make it into heaven, but so that we could enter into a brand new relationship with our creator and in him, we would find life that we're longing for. Listen, your salvation was not as much about heaven one day as today walking with the God that made you. That's the reason Jesus came. And anytime we're trying to find life outside of that, it just reveals the depth of our brokenness. Jesus came so that you might have a relationship, so that you may know God and walk with God and talk with God and be in relationship with him. This is why he came. So here's the question, how did he do this? So how is this reconciliation possible? Verse 19, and again, we're gonna do some work in verse 19. He says this, he says, that is, he's gonna repeat what he said in verse 18. That is, in Christ, God was, here it is again, reconciling the world to himself. So that's the whole purpose of Jesus coming. How did he do it? Next phrase, not counting their trespasses against them. Now listen, I know I've said this once already, and I'm gonna say it multiple times a day. I need your eyes right here for a second. Because this poses a problem in the text. Now, it doesn't pose a problem because for many of us because we read the Bible like from the lens of American Christianity. Understand, that last phrase is a definitive problem if we don't understand what's being said here. He says that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. How? By not counting their trespasses against him. The question is, how in the world can God do this? 
You see, if you read it just through the lens of American Christianity, you look at it and you go, oh, of course God did. God doesn't want heaven without me and he needs a relationship with me and therefore, of course, God didn't count my sins against me. Why? Because he's loving and how could he uh, hold my sins accountable, uh, me accountable for my sins if he loves me? And we just kind of write that verse off and we miss the power that's there. Because this is fundamentally a problem for the nature of God. Why? Because the Bible says that God is holy and he is righteous and he is perfect. And it says that he is the just judge. What does it mean to be a just judge? It means that you have to hold the guilty accountable. That's what it means. And we all know we're guilty. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're, we're severed from that relationship. That is our problem at our core. And then Paul comes along and says, this holy, righteous God that judges everything justly, here's how he reconciled you. He overlooked your sin. He didn't hold you accountable for your sin. That poses a problem for the nature of God. And here's why. If he's holy, that means he's perfect, and he cannot tolerate that which is not perfect. Nod your head if you're with me. And if he's just, that means that in his holiness, he has to render a just verdict which means that there are consequences for our sin that violates his holiness. If God compromises in his execution of justice, it violates his holiness. So think about this in our, our earthly terms. Uh, think about a judge. Let's say in a community there is a judge, and this judge is a good judge. We would call him in Bible language a righteous judge, a just judge. And so we know this judge is good, and we know he's good because, man, he seems to be very fair. He has a lot of wisdom and when he uh, oversees a case, and he evaluates all of the evidence, and he wants to make sure that, that he, he renders accurate judgments on whatever case he's overviewing. And he knows the law really well. He knows exactly what is a crime, what is not a crime, and what is the due penalty of a crime. So he, he's a judge. So imagine this. In a community, you've got this judge, and his reputation is he's a just and good judge. How do we know? He holds people accountable to the law in a way that's fair. Now get that judge in your mind. Imagine you being in a courtroom and everybody in that room knows the person standing before his bench is guilty. The judge looks at the evidence. All the evidence points to a, ver a, a, a guilty verdict. I'll say it in a second. So he knows the verdict has to be guilty. The evidence points. The person in front even says, I did it. I'm guilty as charged. Imagine for a moment that judge slamming the gavel going, not guilty. Everybody in the room knows they're guilty. All the evidence says they're guilty. The guilty knows they're guilty. The judge knows they're guilty. What would happen is, is that judge would lose his reputation for being a just judge immediately, right? Why? Because he rendered a judgment that was out of line with his character. And we would all look at that situation and go, well, if he can't be a just judge, if he's gonna do that. And that's the dilemma that we find in verse 19. This is a dilemma for us because he says, God looked at you and me caught in your trespass. The verdict is guilty. The evidence is there. And by the way, everybody in the room knows that we're guilty. The judge knows we're guilty. We know we're guilty. And it says right here that God says not guilty. How does he do this? How does he get away with this? Verse 21 is the answer. Listen to this. For our sake, he made him to be sin 
who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the answer. I don't know of a more clear explanation of the gospel in all of the Bible than that verse right there. In essence, here is how verse 19 is possible. Paul is saying, God, the great judge, made Jesus the innocent who had never trespassed to become a trespasser so that we who are trespassers, who are sinners, might be counted as those who have never trespassed. How do they do this? How does Jesus not count our sins against us? It's because he accounted them against Christ. And then the righteousness of Jesus, the perfection of Jesus, the sinlessness of Jesus, he accredits or he counts toward us. That's the mind-blowing beauty of the gospel. And this is what many scholars call the great exchange. This is why the gospel is such great news that brings unbelievable joy into our life because it's the declaration that though we are guilty before the judge, the judge was able to render a not guilty verdict because he condemned Jesus in our place. So listen, we don't need a cheapen grace. God does not just forgive your sin. Hear me say that. When we, when we just uh, passively and, and participate in sin, like, well, God will forgive me. He's the God of grace. God doesn't just forgive our sin. He makes forgiveness possible because he transferred the weight of our sin onto the perfection of his son so the perfection of his son might be given to us. If we approach God with our sin as if he just overlooks it and we fail to recognize he only can overlook it because he laid it on Jesus we miss the point and we cheapen grace. So imagine again that scene, you're in a community where there's this just judge who is a good judge, he renders right verdicts. And everybody in the room knows the person in front of the bench is guilty. The evidence is pointing to the guilty nature. The judge knows that even the person confesses, I'm guilty. Imagine this is the scene of verse 21. It's the judge slamming the gavel down saying, guilty as charged. And then he stands up and he steps out from behind the bench and he pulls off his robe as a judge and he goes and he stands and says, you are guilty, but I will stand in your place and I will receive the verdict for you. That's the incarnation of Christ. The God of heaven took off the glory that was rightfully his to come and put on the flesh so that he might stand in front of the bench of God's wrath and say, I will receive for them what they're guilty of. That's the beauty of what we've received. That's how we can receive this ever-restoring life. That's the message of Christmas. That's what Jesus came to usher in. So what does this produce? Like once we experience this and embrace this by faith, and by the way, in just a few moments, we're gonna take of the Lord's Supper. By the way, this little packet you're gonna receive a little later, it's a little complex, all right? So it's got a, a top layer that you have to peel out to get the wafer, the bread, and then another layer you'll have to peel off to get to the juice, all right? So here's what's gonna happen in a little bit. Deacons are gonna serve us and we're gonna take the wafer and we're gonna take the cup and here's what we're gonna do. The Lord's Supper is simply a reminder of what Jesus paid for our reconciliation. So when you take of the bread and you eat of it, you're thinking of the broken body that was marred for our sake. We're gonna take the cup, we're gonna drink and be reminded of the blood of Christ that was shed 
to cover our sin. And we're gonna remember that he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what we're gonna do in just a little bit. So what does this produce in our life? Question number one was what? How is the ever-restoring life possible? Question number two is what does the ever-restoring life produce? Here's the answer, write this down. When God reconciles us through Jesus, he gives us the ever-restoring mission of being agents of reconciliation. That's what he does. This is what he is. Look what he says in verse 18. He says, all of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and check out the last phrase and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So God, listen, when we respond by faith to Jesus and are reconciled, we enter into an ever restoring relationship where we are a new creation. And then in that moment, God says, now you are gonna become the messengers that go and proclaim this message of reconciliation to the world around you. So this is why we call it the ever restoring message and the ever restoring mission. Why? Because this ever restoring life works in me and then it works through me so that the world around me might also be reconciled to God just like me. We've been entrusted with this. That's what he says in verse 19. He doubles down. He says it again. Verse 19. He says, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. End of verse 19. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. The word entrust there means it's the idea of placing something of great value in the care of another. What is the thing that he has placed in our care? It's the message of reconciliation. We are to be stewards of the message of reconciliation. So you have been redeemed to be agents of redemption. You have been reconciled to be reconcilers. You have been restored so that you can be one who restores others. You have a mission and a purpose in your life. And this is the great news. Some of you are wandering through life right now, career to career, job to job, hobby after hobby, trying to find meaning and purpose. Listen to me. If you are in Christ, you have a purpose, and that is to be a messenger of reconciliation to a world that needs to know that God loves them and that he sent Christ for them. That is who you are. That is what we're called to do. So let's go back for a second. If we were reconciled for relationship only, which is primary, right? We were reconciled so we can be in fellowship with God to know him and to walk with him. Here's just a fun little question to ask. Why in the world doesn't God just take us to heaven as soon as we get saved? Like if it's just about relationship, I can do that a lot better in heaven than I can do on earth. So if that's the primary reason, I mean, or is he just kind of a, a God that's like, I'm gonna save you and then leave you here to flounder for a little bit and then eventually you'll, you'll be able to experience, right? Some sort of purpose and meaning. Let me tell you why you're on planet Earth. Listen to me, everybody take a deep breath. Everybody exhale. If you've got breath in your lungs, you've got a purpose. And that purpose, listen to this, according to Paul in this passage, is to know God and to make him known. It is to know God, it is to make him known. Now we can do that in several different arenas, but that's our fundamental purpose, to know him, to savor him, to enjoy him, and then make him known to the world around us. It's not to make a living, it's not to make a retirement, it's not to have things of this world, although all of those things are great, but your primary purpose for existence is to know him and make him known. And Paul really clarifies this by giving us a title in verse number 20. Look what he says in verse number 20. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. 
God making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. You hear this title that you've received? You are an ambassador for Christ. What is an ambassador? Simple definition. An ambassador is someone who lives in one kingdom, who's been given a message by the governing authority to deliver to another kingdom, to represent and to deliver that message. So it's one person in one kingdom receiving the authorization and message from the kingdom that they belong to, to go into another kingdom to represent that message and to deliver that message. We have been redeemed by the blood of Christ and we have been adopted as children of God, which means we are citizens of his kingdom. The scripture says that we are citizens of the beloved son, so we are a part of another kingdom. And the reason we are left in this broken, fallen, busted kingdom of this earth is because we are now to live as a representative, as an ambassador who says there is a message from the kingdom that we belong to and we are called to represent and deliver it to the kingdom that we've been sent to. And that's the reason we're here. No other reason. We are ambassadors. And you hear the magnitude of the weight? Look what it says. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. You hear that? We implore you on Christ's behalf. God making his appeal. You know what that means? When you finally get the courage and you call that friend and you're like, okay, we're gonna have coffee and I'm gonna take the moment and I'm gonna share the gospel with this friend or this family member that I've been burdened for. I'm gonna take them to dinner, invite them over. I'm gonna actually sit down and share the gospel. You know what's happening? When you sip that coffee and you share that message, it is not you speaking to that friend. It is God making his appeal through you to that friend. You're nothing more than the voice. How crazy is that? I'm telling you, this verse changes how I preach. Because I don't have to worry about what you think about me. All I've got to do is, okay, what's the message? All right, so I'm going to go and deliver this. Why? Because it's God making his appeal through me. When you share your faith with a friend or a loved one, it is God making his appeal through you. You are the voice of God so that the world might know about the reconciling message of Jesus. And the flip is true as well, the flip side of that. If God has called you, and he has, and you're not sharing, God's placing a burden for that friend, and you don't share, you know what you're doing? You're closing the mouth of God. Now, we like the first one, don't we? But the second one kind of stings. So your disobedience, listen to me, when God tells you to go and proclaim and share, your disobedience is silencing the voice of God because he has called you to be his voice and his mouth so he can make his appeal to their heart through you, be reconciled to me. That's a game changer, is it not? That changes everything, how we approach life. Paul understood this. I'm an ambassador. So where, where, where am I ambassador? Let me help you where your mission is. Your mission is wherever God has you. So think about three, three areas of your life. Number one, think about your location, your neighborhood, where you live. Nod your head if you're with me. All right, that's your mission field. Think about, where, think about your vocation, where you work. That's your mission field. Think about your recreation, where you play, hobbies, 
That's your mission field. At the end of the day, you know what we are? We're nothing more than people who have been restored back into relationship with God, who exist to restore other people back into relationship with God. And where are we called to do that? Wherever God has us, where we live, where we work, where we play, our location, our vocation, our recreation. All of our life is to be for that purpose and that end. And this is how God is gonna change the world. It's how God is changing the world through people like you, people like me, just being obedient, being restored, and being an agent of restoration. So here's what we're gonna do this morning. I'm gonna get you to bow your heads, and we're gonna spend a few moments in prayer and reflection, and eventually we're actually gonna pray for lost people. And I'm gonna ask, you know, make sure that your phones are on silent. Um, make sure that you're not getting up, going out to the bathroom and stuff. Just, just hang tight, because I believe God wants to do some things this morning. And... and just with your head bowed and your eyes closed, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say a couple of things to you to prepare you for what we're about to do. I wanna, I wanna tell you, first of all, for those of you who come to Wednesday night prayer meeting, this is gonna feel a lot like prayer meeting, and I encourage you to um, be a leader in the room with what we're doing. There are others of you that, that this is gonna be very new. This is a part of your discipleship, and this is, some of it's gonna feel uncomfortable, and that's okay. Uh, we're not gonna be handing a mic to you. We're not gonna be asking you to lead a prayer. We're just gonna ask you to spend time with the Lord and I'm gonna be setting you up, pushing you toward meeting with him in a particular way. And so I wanna encourage you to, to be vulnerable in this moment and to be open for the Lord moving in your heart and your life. Here's the second thing that I want you to know is that this requires humility. This requires anybody that approaches God has to come to him in humility. And it's this dependency. And so what we're gonna do for a few moments is we're gonna give an opportunity to respond. And, and here's the, the first way I want us to respond. Um, there are some of you in, this, in the room this morning and you need to receive the message of reconciliation. You need to receive Christ. And um, you've never experienced his ever-restoring life and this is where you need to start this morning. You are uncertain of your relationship with God. And in just a few moments, we're gonna begin to, to, to have a time of prayer and pursue the Lord, and at any moment, there is uncertainty. If you have doubts about your salvation, like I don't know that I'm saved or I know that I'm not, and you sense the Holy Spirit stirring in you, I don't want you to miss the opportunity. You're just gonna get up from your seat, you're gonna find one of our decision encouragers, and you're just gonna talk to them and say, hey, I need to settle this relationship with Jesus. I need to know that I know him. And I'm asking you, listen, be vulnerable and be open to that. Others of you in the room, there are gonna be times as we, if you know Christ, we're gonna be walking through some confession, just personal between you and the Lord, but there may be some things in your life that you need somebody else to pray for you about. And I want you to know these decision encouragers are here as well, and specifically just areas of your spiritual journey that you need God uh, to speak into, areas that you need his strength. And so I'm gonna encourage you to, to slip out during this time and to pray with them. This altar is gonna be open. I'm gonna encourage you to kneel at your seat uh, or kneel in the aisle. Find a posture. It could be that you're gonna take the posture of standing this entire time, but you need to get in the position that's comfortable for you and I'm asking you to begin to pursue the Lord with intentionality as we walk through this. So if you need Jesus, this is gonna be an opportunity for you. And for those of you who know Jesus, here's what's gonna happen. There's gonna be a list of questions on the screen. And those questions are just gonna help you confess sin. Sin in the life of a believer quenches the work of the Holy Spirit. So if we're gonna be walking in fellowship with him, we've gotta deal with sin. And so these, these questions that are gonna be on the screen are gonna be a guide to you to help you rightly confess. 
They're gonna trigger things in your life. And here's the only thing that I'm asking you to do. If the Holy Spirit shows you an area that you need to confess, then I'm asking you to be obedient and deal with it. Call it by name. Talk to the Lord about it. If there's something you have not done, like be baptized, you know you should do, or maybe share the gospel with a friend, I'm asking you to surrender and repent of that and, and choose to walk in obedience immediately. And so this is a time of confession. This is a time of drawing near to the Lord. There are areas of sin, distraction, relationships that have been broken, things that you've been thinking about, looking at, things that you should be doing that you're not doing. I'm asking you to let the Holy Spirit examine your heart this morning and lead you into a place of holiness. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna pray. When I say amen, this is your time, and I'm encouraging you, come to this altar, kneel at your seat, stand if you need to, kneel in the aisle, come and speak to a decision encourager. This is our opportunity to meet with the God that reconciled us to himself. Let's take it seriously. Father, we love you, and we thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for the privilege of gathering in your name of worshiping you, of, of seeking your face in prayer. We're asking by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would move. And God, that you would give us a heart. Lord, there are people in this room right now who know they need you. And God, I'm, I'm, I'm fearful that pride is gonna step in the way of them coming to one of our encouragers. God, I'm praying that you would give them courage even now as I pray. Lord, there are gonna be some that are gonna wanna gloss over sin that needs to be dealt with because they, they don't wanna look at you and don't wanna have a conversation with you about it. I pray that you would tenderly bring them to a place of conviction and then to a place of submission. God, we lay this time before you and we ask right now in the name of Jesus that you would move. We ask this in Christ's name, amen, amen. So this is your time. There'll be questions on the screen. Decision courage is available. This altar is open. I'm encourage you to change your posture if you need to. But let's get humble and pursue the Lord even now.